Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Muso Kwanga, a journalist, poet, and musician who co-hosts the Stadio podcast on Spotify for The Ringer. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Gio Reyna, Becky Sauerbrunn, and Luis Omar Tapia, along with many others, so check those interviews out. It would be huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. Now, here's my interview with Musa Okwanga. Our guest now is one of my favorite people in the soccer world. Musa Okwanga is a poet, journalist, and musician. He is the Berlin-based co-host of The Ringer's Stadio podcast with Ryan Hun on Spotify. He also writes for The Ringer. He has written three books on soccer, and he has three books set to come out in 2021. One of them, an Eton College memoir. In the end, it was all about love, a meditation on being a foreigner and a black man in Berlin. And Striking Out, a novel for children written with Ian Wright about the former Arsenal star's life. Musa, great to see you. Happy birthday over the weekend. And thanks so much for coming on the show. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Number 41, 41 years old, as my friend said, <laughs> in the prime of life. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Fantastic. You also have the greatest laugh in soccer podcasts. So that's great to hear as well. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Now, for all the times I think Twitter is a cesspool, and it certainly can be, it has also connected me to some amazing people, which is how I met you. Uh, we finally ended up meeting in person in, I think it was February 2019, when I came yeah. to, to Berlin shooting a video on soccer in Germany, and yes. you, you graciously spent some time with us. Uh, do, you have, do you also have to sometimes remind yourself that social media can be a good thing? I love it. I love it for all its challenges. Um, like, like you say, it connected us and connected me with so many people. I've made some of my very best friendships on, uh, on, on Twitter in particular. And actually, the football club that I play for, shout out to the Unicorns here in Berlin, I met through them. Like, I met through social media, through Twitter, through following people and talking to them. So for me, it's been an absolute, um, an absolute joy, to be honest, on the whole. <laughs> I love your podcast, Stadio, with Ryan Hun, and was excited when you signed on with The Ringer for it. Uh, clearly, part of The Ringer's strategy after being bought by Spotify is to get more global, and you guys are obviously part of that. How yeah. did you guys end up with The Ringer, and, and do you feel like that has increased the size of your American audience as well? I mean, it's definitely increased the size of the American audience, and it's put us in a whole new category in terms of people writing to me going look i read the ringer um i check out all their stuff and to have you on there i mean actually from cousins all of a sudden our podcast was suddenly validated because <laughs> cousins were getting in touch from ohio and new york state going oh my goodness my cousin's got a podcast on the ringer um so that's been amazing um how the ringer found us so we um they've been in touch with us for a while a couple of their staff had been at different organizations and seen my writing there so they'd been looking at my writing for a while and they they saw me start something with ryan and they'd been listening you know as people do and sort of taking a view and checking us out for a few months and then someone from spotify got in touch and was like this is strange because we're in a pandemic and most people's numbers are down for their podcast but your numbers are actually increasing i think one month we actually doubled our listeners and they were like how are you how are you doubling your listeners in a pandemic 
Um, and they were like, these guys don't seem to need football to talk about football. <laughs> and we tried to make it fun. We were doing all these kind of interactive episodes like, you know, what would, um, if a footballer was a wire character, who would they be? And if a footballer was a supervillain, who would they be? And people were really responding to it. So eventually they got in touch during the pandemic and were like, how about we work together on something? And there we were. So yeah. It really does seem to fit well with kind of what The Ringer is about, which is sports, but also the crossover with pop culture, things like yeah, that. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I, I love your your hypotheticals as well. Like you're, you had a, a couple this week about um, what would happen if Marcelo Bielsa had taken over Barcelona when oh he left God, yes. Athletic, yeah. which is great. And, and, or if Arsene Wenger had taken over Germany after 2018. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine? Yeah, anyway, I can imagine. But yeah, no, I love them. But then they got like Wondolowski if he'd scored. If he'd scored that, that oh. one. The yeah, yeah, sorry. Oh, to, <laughs> man, you just killed our listeners right there, pal. The kind of goal he'd been scoring his entire career. Yeah. Like if you'd ever wanted, it was like giving Big Shot Rob the ball with 0.4 left. You know, it's just what he does. It, it's amazing. And this is one thing I, I, I really do love about your your podcast and sort of your sensibility is, is I can't think of too many people on the European continent or in Europe in general who they may have seen Wando's miss against Belgium, but they also did, don't know the background of Wando um, in terms of his amazing life story and success story in MLS to become the greatest scorer in MLS history and that he has that background. Like, I guess one question I would have for you, this is a bit of yeah. a tangent, is you seem to have from Berlin a very keen understanding of America and seem to watch a lot of like sports, not just soccer from right. America and tweet about it. Like, do you like, how do you do that? <laughs> well, okay, this is a so the truth is, um, when my family fled Uganda um, as refugees in the 70s, they scattered all over the world. And my parents, before I was born, went to the UK. And a lot of my other relatives went to the US. Okay. Now, some turned up in the 1970s in Seattle and had wonderful lives. And others turned up in the state of Alabama under George Wallace in the 70s. Now, that was a difficult, right, that's a different universe. Um, so I, as a result of that, I have relatives all over the US. And the first one I went there was in 1994. It actually was the World Cup, the Cotton Bowl. I went two games there. Um, shout out to Sweden, Saudi Arabia, and Brazil, <laughs> Holland. And, and, and so from 1994, began following American sport in great detail. So I was a Cleveland Indians fan back in the day. I was a Maple Leafs fan, North American sport. I followed the Rangers. That was the same summer that the Rangers won the Stanley Cup. Um, the Rockets won the NBA. Um, and Brazil won the World Cup. There's like a sort of great sporting summer in 94 and basically kept a tab on American sport ever since then and had to stop following some just because I was simply like, you can't follow everything. Right. Um, but the kind of root of my appreciation of American sport began there. So I used, at one point I was like a college football obsessive. <laughs> you wouldn't believe that in the nineties, in the early nineties, I was a college football obsessive. And that's why I was mentioning before we got on the podcast discussing the college football, I still watch those breakdowns by those great like uh, college football coaches. I still watch that today. So yeah, it's still <laughs> my closet, uh, <laughs> my closet love of American sport. That's fantastic. Um, so in terms of your podcast audio, like you were sort of independent before you signed on with The Ringer. Right, H yeah. How did, how did the podcast start up in the first place with you and Ryan? I have to give credit to Ryan Hunt, who is an absolute genius. Um, 
he is a genius. It's um, it's a word that's often overused, but that's what he is. He's a true visionary. So, apologies for the background siren. That's no, just the it gives us a, a, <laughs> an international flavor. Our sirens don't sound like that. <laughs> it's the Berlin national anthem right there. Um, so I, Ryan got in touch with me because he's a brilliant musician. He won't tell you that, but he is. He's a brilliant musician. Um, who's under a couple of brilliant aliases. Those who know his work, they know what I'm talking about. Um, he gets in touch and he says, look, I want to start a football podcast and I want to do things a bit differently, which is a pretty bold thing to say because there's so much football out there. Um, but Ryan came up with a concept that was just so interesting and attractive. And, you know, you listen to the podcast, it's just two two guys talking about football, but it, it's more than that. Like he wanted it to be, I suppose, really a safe haven for anybody who loves the game, who is concerned for its future but who always wants to celebrate its best. And so even when we talk to players, every now and again, we'll get like um, an ex-player on. But we talk to them by trying to ask them the questions they've never been asked before. So that would mean me going through every interview, him going through every interview they've ever, ever done and being like, what haven't they talked about? Or what hypothetical have they not been given before? And so that's what we kind of tried to do with Stadio. And we, uh, he composed the intro music, which is amazing, but he also has this great thing called the Stadio outros where we select a lesser known track at the end of every single episode to play out on, which kind of carries the theme of the podcast. So it's a bit like having a different meal uh, for your ears every three days. So that's it. That's the concept. It's a really good listen. And one thing I also like about it is you have no problem opening your podcast talking about the latest news in the women's Bundesliga in Germany, which is different from a lot of soccer podcasts in terms of like, that wouldn't be the first thing I would think of as the a way to maximize listeners. And yet mm. um, I like it because we have a, 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 a bigger interest here in the United States, I think in women's soccer than, than maybe in other countries. Yeah. Um, but you guys really do follow everything out there. You give a lot of attention to women's soccer, whether it's, Germany, whether it's the WSL in England, whether it's the NWSL here in the United States. Yeah. Um, so like, what are you guys setting out to do in your podcast generally? Or is it is that too broad a question? No, it's not too broad at all, because I think you have to go that broad. I think the way that I would encourage you to understand um, football at all levels is it's like the human body, like every organ is connected, right? You've got the pancreas, the liver, everything has a relationship with each other. So you start with the women's Bundesliga because at this point in, in the football in Canada, that is where the greatest pressure points are being brought to bear. So you have a major injury to Alexandra Pop, the Germany captain, which could affect the entire destination of the German championship, which then has implications for the Champions League as well. And so, and so when you start looking at football as a kind of unified body, which is what it is at youth level, women's level, whatever, it then becomes so exciting and compelling. And I think what we're trying to do is encourage storytelling about the game on and off the field by as broad a collection of people as possible. I think, um, you know, the greatest figures in football haven't just been uh, footballers. They've been custodians of the game. You look at Cruyff, you look at LeBron James in basketball. He's not just a basketball player. He's a custodian of the game. There's a sense in which LeBron imagines the best, the best self of basketball. And we're trying to celebrate the best self of football that makes sense in any form that that takes no that's fantastic i mean like it, it's it just the way you guys discuss it like there's 
you basically talk about the women's Bundesliga the same way you would talk about any other league and you have the history down and you know it and, and it comes across. Answer one question for me. My friend Ari Hingst is an assistant at Wolfsburg, which has been yeah. the top women's team in Germany. Mm. They just replaced their head coach. They've had a lot of success over the years with Ari there. Why isn't she the head coach? <laughs> Listen, I, I think... If I'm honest, look, I mean, I think Wolfsburg should be one of the biggest clubs in the world in terms of its social media um, visibility. I had a look recently and they weren't even top 20, I think, in terms of their social media impressions. So if you ask me, I think I think there's more they can do to galvanize, actually, that club. I think there's a lot more they can do. And that could be a decision that's valuable in it. I think that they should be given more tools. And I'll say this as someone, you know, I, I know a lot of the people in that organization on the women's side and the men's side, we actually wrote a song. We performed a song, actually, the group I'm in for their like annual Christmas party. So I know people there. So if they hear this, I want them. I just want to encourage them to say, "Look, you have an underutilized asset." I feel like that's on and off the field. Um, you know, I even though they got to the Champions League final this year, I was looking at that Wolfsburg team. Went to watch them a few times. It's probably my team in Germany. If there's anyone, the Wolfsburg women's team. And I have to say, I saw. I felt concerned about the diversity of goal scoring at key moments. Um, I felt that there was recruitment was maybe uneven in certain areas. So yeah, like I, I would say that I think even if you're a champion, there's, there's places you can improve and you improve on those places by giving people the appropriate tools and in some cases the appropriate tenure to have more success. I'm curious to see one of the things uh, that's happening very recently here is we're starting to see women's club soccer rights being sold for the first time globally and including in the US. And so mm. we're, we've seen the WSL end up on NBC this season. We've seen just last week, the French Women's League did a deal with ESPN Plus. And it, I wouldn't be surprised to see, I hope Germany end up, uh, you know, I hope so. much yeah. easier to, to be viewed in, in the United States. Um, I wanted to ask you about Berlin. You've lived yes. in Berlin for several years now. Yeah. Why, did, why did you move there? Um, actually, uh, shout out to Carlos Murdoch, good friend of mine, architect based in Brazil, who ran for the local uh, elections in, uh, in Rio, uh, got a few thousand votes as well. Carlos Murdoch, so I was at the 2018 World Cup in Brazil covering the tournament for a few different outlets. And he said, like, what are you still doing in the UK? You have an international outlook. Why are you there? And I was like, I, I, it is international. He said, no, London is international. The UK is not. So I got to thinking, I was like, actually, I have been considering moving abroad, maybe Stockholm or Amsterdam. And he said, why not Berlin? And I'd actually studied Berlin in my kind of high school equivalent. Um, I studied German, sorry, in high school equivalent. And he said, well, why not that? And I just kind of got on a plane a few weeks after that conversation, found a flat, and here I am, six years <laughs> later. That was literally it. Yeah. <laughs> One conversation over dinner in a Rio middle-class suburb, and that was it. Wow. Is that scary when you do that or do you look at it in a different way um it's a bit like running through on goal it's only frightening if you look back like if you are targeting like you look at the bottom corner you know where you're going the goalkeeper knows you're going to score you know you're going to score that's the that's the mentality i think and the same with moving to berlin if you look back and consider all the things that can go wrong then you don't make the move but i'm like it's going to work and yeah, it was, and to be honest, I think the trick is to be excited by opportunity rather than afraid of it, I think. And you do have a book coming out about this topic, uh, about yeah. being in Berlin and what you've experienced there. Um, how would you describe it? 
It's a, oh my gosh. Um, first of all, I am just, I cannot believe it's coming out as and I'm so excited by that. It's part memoir, part novella, um, part poetry. So like each, it's, it's very short. It's like 30,000 words long because I want people to read it in like one short train journey. Um, and it's basically like each part starts the different poem and it's basically, I suppose, like a, a memoir. If you're arising in the city, I guess it's like, if you ever played like Grand Theft Auto or one of those, like, you know, one of those like first person shooter games, it's written in a second person in the present tense. So it's basically written as if you are arriving in Berlin, living it through my eyes. And each chapter is super short. Like each chapter is on average like 500 words. So it's very much a kind of like bite size. You can read it if you're distracted by social media type book. So yeah, that's the that's the plan. That's awesome. I, I, I can't wait to to read it. We'll, um, we'll, ping you, we'll ping you a copy. We'll ping you a copy. Don't worry. <laughs> I mean, you've done some very cool uh, things, uh, you know, inverse uh, promotions for the German Bundesliga, for one thing, which people should check out. They kind of Google your name and Bundesliga. I'm sure it would come up. Um, you know, I, I introduced you as not just a journalist, but a poet and a musician. Uh, on those poet and musician sides, yeah. what are some things you've done in the past and, and are still doing in those areas? Well, yes, the thing I'm most proud of, as you just mentioned, is the... Um, the piece of the Bundesliga, there's a spot we did, which I think they use on Fox Sports quite a bit. So the Bundesliga approached me and my group called BBXO, and they said, we basically want a poem to promote us abroad. So we wrote them like a two-minute treatment called Football As It's Meant To Be, which is kind of spoken word, bass music, um, a video. And like, I'm so proud of that. You know, me and Chris, who work on BBXO, Chris Corey, so shout out to him. We're so proud of that. Um, also put out... Um, a tune called Hard Road to Travel on Spotify, which now has, I think, like 300,000 listens, which is great for a song which had no promo behind it. And that's based on a song of my um, family's escape from Uganda um, as refugees. And in particular, the story of my grandfather who fled, I think it was 400 kilometers through Ugandan like bush being pursued by soldiers. He fled, yeah, he fled on foot with a kind of eight foot um, staff like through the jungle. Um, so yeah, through the bush. So yeah, those are the two things I'm most proud of. Now, let's. I was going to ask this later, but let's ask it now. I, in terms of your family's story, your family is yeah. originally from Uganda. You were yeah. born in London. Uh, would you be okay sharing the story of your family's move as refugees from, from Uganda to the United Kingdom? Of course, I think it's important. So long story short, um, in the mid-1970s, Idi Amin basically started a kind of insurgency and came into Uganda and started basically just murdering middle-class people. So he was go at one point he was going into operating theaters, dragging out surgeons who were never seen again, like mid-operation, because he'd worked out the best way to start a coup is to wipe out the middle class because they're the potential leaders. So women were being dragged out of high schools, sexually assaulted and disappeared. Men were being dragged out, murdered, disappeared, never seen again. And so this was happening in the mid seventies. And at one point my dad, before he met my mother, was going to medical school in the day and going into hiding at night because the people knew they did come for you. They wouldn't come for you necessarily at the medical school. They'd come for you when you were sleeping. So my mum and my dad spent their first year of medical school having met each other like in hiding. And my dad was like, we've got to get out. Like Uganda's too hot. So they basically fled to the UK in the late 1970s now. Oh, so in 1976. And they had me um, in 1979, so three years later, 
They moved to kind of a suburb of a small English town. My father was killed because he went back to Uganda after the overthrow video, I mean, because he was like, look, there's chaos now. They've overthrown this leader, but there's a power vacuum. And if the power vacuum ends badly, they're going to go north and wipe us out because our ethnic group was one which was hostile to Idi Amin, had a lot of the sort of middle class he was targeting. So my grand, my, my father went back to fight and got killed. Um, his helicopter got shot down by the rival forces a few miles north of the capital Kampala. And shortly after that, the forces that defeated my dad's forces ended up in power and they've been in power since 1987. So that's the story. It's an amazing story. I'm so sorry about your loss. I, I told you before we started recording here, I actually ha have known you, but didn't know that story until I started yeah, preparing for this. Um, how do you think your family's history with Uganda has has shaped you? And, and how has the immigrant experience of your family yeah. shaped you? Huge impact, huge impact. Great question. So I actually outlived my father a few days ago, I became older than he ever was. So he survived till he was just a few days younger than 41. So he was eight days before his 41st birthday when he was killed. And I was 41 this weekend. So I've outlived him by, wow, like um, a couple of weeks now, which is a strange thought. Uh, so it's had a huge impact on me and it's, it's had a huge impact on how I engage politically with subjects. You know, it's been important to be outspoken and be strategic and think of the big picture and not get discouraged by short-term losses, which is why I'm quite sanguine about what's happening politically now, because all my political heroes thought 50 years in the future. You know, Ida B. Wells, um, Dr. King, Sojourner Truth, Angela Davis, these people all looked at multi-generational struggle. So they weren't dissuaded by, you know, the short-term horror. It, it was horrifying to see, but they were like, actually, it's bigger than this. Um, I think that's what I've taken from the immigrant experience in particular, and specifically the, the refugee experience, I would say. What are your thoughts on present day Uganda? Do you, have you been there? Do you still have any relatives there? Yeah, I do. Uh, many relatives there. I think it's a country of extraordinary opportunity, and I think that it's going to have a huge role to play in the next few years. I think with climate change coming um, and the kind of the moves I see being made there on an entrepreneurial level in Uganda, I feel that Uganda is going to be a place people look to in the next 30, 40 years, just in terms of its geographical location, the opportunities there financially, ecologically, I think it's going to have a huge role to play. Have you been able to visit at all? Yeah, I was back there. Actually, I visited my, um, in fact, it's funny. So the book about Berlin ends in Uganda. It ends with my visit there. The, the final part of the book is called Homecoming. And I basically go there for the first time to my uh, father's village, the first time in 35 years, which was incredibly emotional because I visited his grave. Um, the first time I remember my father, I was burying him. My first memory of him, he was in a coffin. Um, I put the first handful of um, soil on his grave, as is the kind of tradition with the oldest son. So yeah, it was an incredibly moving experience, but my connection to that country is still very strong. I'm going to do a jarring transition here. I appreciate you sharing <laughs> all of that. Do it, uh, do it, a Cruyff, a Cruyff turn. This is very much a Cruyff turn, though not quite <laughs> as stylish. Uh, <laughs> why do you love football? Why do you love soccer? Oh, actually, it's not as much a turn as you think, because my grandfather 
was the president of the Ugandan FA. Oh. Yeah, yeah. He actually coached the national side for a few years. So no our way. family. Yeah, like two of my two of my uncles played All America third team, were selected for All America third team. And we've always been obsessed with football. Like it's always been in our blood. And even one of the great poets out of Uganda, Akot Patek, was a great footballer, played for the national side. So like there is such a lineage. The overlap of poetry and football is in my it's in my blood basically. So yeah, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, just love it. I I do remember when I visited you in Berlin, we talked about this to an extent about not just your viewing of football and appreciation of the sport, but you also play it. Yeah. Uh, and we talked about sort of in Berlin, even though they're you know they have professional teams and they have two teams in the Bundesliga now, they aren't viewed as sort of like traditional powerhouses in Germany. But you did tell me that the sort of amateur soccer culture in Berlin is really developed. Oh, it's incredible. There's an amazing magazine, I've got to mention. Shout out to Bloody Hell magazine. They, look, they cover non-league football and amateur football in Berlin. There's an incredible richness and depth. For example, there's a club called Tebe, which are like seventh division, seventh tier Berlin football. And they have the worst ever defensive record in the history of the Bundesliga, but they've got a lot of really proud fans. And it's totally normal to be a fan of Tebe rather than to be a fan of a big Berlin club. And what I love about the individual clubs in Berlin, what I've always loved about football in any city is you play amateur football, you get to see parts of the city you'd never normally see. Games in the sleepy suburbs, games in the heart of it, teams that are anti-fascist, teams that are like entirely Bosnian, teams entirely Polish and Turkish, Tur Turkish German. So really like to play for a local amateur team in Berlin is kind of to be aware of a very special and unique psychogeography of a city. And that's why I love it, I guess. It reminds me a little bit of like the New York City area, because if you look at the US Open Cup knockout tournament, which <laughs> until this year had been the longest running tournament in just about any American sport, you know, over a hundred wow. year history. But if you look at the list of winners over the decades, uh, before there was an established American outdoor league or between leagues, um, you know, it was teams like with names like the Brooklyn Italians that won the U.S. Open Cup knockout tournament. And, Love it. And there's just such a, a a rich history of soccer in America that that not many people, even current new soccer fans, know about. Right. Um, that but reminds me a little bit this international city here in New York. Berlin, also another great international city, yeah. appears to have something similar. Big similarities like our team, the Unicorns. We, in our squad, we had, the other day we were counting, we had like 16, 17 different nationalities. And someone's like, all these nationalities, someone's like, no, you missed one. Someone had missed one. Like we had that <laughs> many. So it's absolutely incredible. We've got, um, we've got Turkish, we've got um, Australian, We've got Afghan, I mean, my goodness, like the whole range, Japanese, all sorts. And I, I've forgotten like 15 already there. So yeah. <laughs> so now good. we've talked about one of your books that's coming out. I do want to talk a little bit about the other two you have coming out next year. Now, having written oh, two, two books in my lifetime, I do find it incredible that you have three books coming out ah. in 2021 alone. Um, <laughs> so you have a book called One of Them, which is an, an Eton College memoir. What, right, right. what is that about? So um, the current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and the Prime Minister, the last Prime Minister but one, David Cameron, both attended the same school that I did. And in fact, um, 
the person that wrote the economic policy that has defined modern Britain, Rupert Harrison, was the year above me at school at Eton. I was, I was there at Eton College. So I just thought, let me kind of do a flashback and work out how the UK got from there back when I was at school when I was 18 to here. Because it feels like the last 20 years, the visibility of, of my school, which 20 prime ministers from uh, have attended, um, has really grown and its importance has grown in terms of the kind of the national psyche. So I wanted to go back in time to the age of 18 and be like, how much of this was foreshadowing? But it's quite a scary thing to do, to go back to kind of your 13-year-old self and look over yourself as a teenager. It's a difficult exercise, but I'm delighted with the result. I'm so happy with it. And I think ultimately what I found was that, you know, a pretty obvious point, but if you basically put a bunch of highly privileged boys in a closed ecosystem, they're going to end up getting into power and then making decisions that they have no idea of the effect on ordinary people. Um so it's kind of going back over memory lane, but with a view to like, if you want to solve this problem, how do we deconstruct it? So that's that's the plan. And you have another book coming out with Ian Wright called Striking Out. It's a novel oh for God. a novel for children. Uh, yeah. Ian Wright's another one of my favorite people in the world. So I'm really excited you two are working together. How yeah. did that, how did that come together? What's it about? So have you heard his interview on the Desert Island Discs um, BBC? I don't know if you've heard it. It's an amazing, basically, Desert Island Discs in the UK basically is like they interview someone and they give you eight songs that define your life. You can play eight songs to define your life. So I listened to that and I'd got to know Ian before through just Twitter, actually, like yourself. And so he got up, we got him on the Stadio podcast and his agent said, why don't you work together? And I said, I want to base a novel on his Desert Island Discs podcast. I want to capture the raw emotion of that in a novel format, but I want to show the side of Ian that probably you know, because you know Ian through through his son Bradley. So you know him almost a kind of like, as a father almost, and then as a footballer. So I wanted to write a book where children could see him as a father first and a footballer second. So I came up with a plot that was kind of like, Ian basically sees a young boy playing football one day who reminds him of himself. And the young boy reminds him of himself, not just because of the um, the style he plays, not just the technique, but but there's a kind of anger there. There's an anger at the world and at the world's unfairness. So I wrote, I kind of created a character called Jerome and uh, Ian basically gets to know Jerome and actually helps him become a better footballer, but more importantly, a better person. So that's that's the book. That's the plan. I'm really excited about that too. Is there a particular reason you decided to write it for a children's audience? Well, I was approached by the publishers, Scholastic. Um, I wrote a, uh, a biography of Raheem Sterling for them, which came out earlier this year uh, for like sort of eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds. And it, it did really well. We just sold the Norwegian and Swedish rights. It was selling really well. And they were like, you can actually do this, you know, really quite well. Why don't we do this? But for Ian as well. And when we suggested it to Ian, he was like, that's actually a really exciting idea. Um, so shout out to him and to his Ros Roscoe Bowman, his agent. They've been so supportive. And yeah, it's been, um, it's been a joy. I was actually writing just before this podcast. That's my other question is, how do you have time, man? Like, how, like to come on this podcast if you're writing three books and <laughs> your own podcast? <laughs> do you the, on the honest answer, I hate to say it, is um, <laughs> remain single and don't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's like oh my goodness you're so organized i'm like i sleep four hours a night i don't sleep i don't sleep much and um 
I mean, I watched I watched most of the NBA finals. If you want some idea of my sleeping pattern, <laughs> I, I, I do notice you tweeting live like during the NBA finals, and I'm like, wait, like I know what the time difference is. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that explains a few things. That's we're, the secret. <laughs> we're, we're wrapping up here with with Musa Okwanga. A um, couple more quick questions for you. Like, what? Sure. Like, you do so many different things. Like, what do you want to do in the future? Keep doing more of it. I think that the most important thing in our world, we have a world that is very um, binary at times. It forces us to choose one career path or the other. It forces us to think one thing or the other. And if there's one thing I want to do with my work is encourage nuance. And the best way to encourage nuance is to do as many things as possible so that you see the comparisons and the contrast in all experiences and keep open to learning. So yeah, that, I guess that's my my agenda. I mean, and look, also my, my greatest heroes were polymaths. You look at like Hypatia, who ran the lab in Alexandria, Leonardo da Vinci. My greatest heroes did everything until they died. So I want to do everything until that moment. Lastly, and, and this is maybe the most important question of the entire podcast, where did your obsession with roll neck sweaters come from? <laughs> oh my gosh. Do you know... <laughs> Okay, right. Um, roll necks, <laughs> you ambushed me. I think it's a state of mind, a roll neck. I don't know, it's weird. There's no one moment. <laughs> There's no one moment when I felt called. I do feel it as a calling, the roll neck. But do you know what I love about them, Grant? It's like they're the perfect Venn diagram of like smartness and casual. Like you're running for like a plane, you put on a roll neck, it's kind of like it basically irons itself, right? You put on a shirt, you got to iron a shirt, a tie, everything, think of a combo, but a roll neck is just there. Like no one ever tells you at a press conference or like an interview, that's not smart enough. It's like, it's the closest thing to wearing a hoodie for a smart, a smart occasion and getting away with it. It's gold, it's gold. <laughs> so where can people find you on, on social media? They can find me shopping for roll necks, no. They can find me uh, social media at Okwonga, so that's my surname, O-K-W-O-N-G-A. Um, that is uh, on Instagram and on Twitter, and also just at Stadio um, on Twitter, at Stadio, S-T-A-D-I-O, or at Stadio Football on Instagram. That's me, really, yeah. Musa Okwanga is a poet, journalist, and musician. He is the co-host of The Ringer's Stadio podcast with Ryan Hunt on Spotify. He also writes for The Ringer. He's got three books coming out in 2021, one of them, an Eaton College memoir. In the end, it was all about love, a meditation on being a foreigner and a black man in Berlin, and striking out a novel for children written with Ian Wright about the former Arsenal star's life. Musa, really, really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Grant, it's been a joy. Thank you so much, as always. See you in Berlin, hopefully, when yes. this wildness clears. Yes, I, I can't look forward wait. to it. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a big favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Musa Okwanga as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time. Mm -hmm.